0: All right, so I'm going to jump into this message tonight with my notes. I hope you got your Bibles on you. This is a, this is a continuation of last week. We talked about Rosh Hashanah. And uh, anybody remember really quick what we learned about Rosh Hashanah? That it's the Jewish... What holiday is that? It's the Jewish New Year. Thank you so much. Somebody knows. And uh, Rosh Hashanah's correlation is the Feast of... Trumpets. Okay, so um, this week, yesterday was just this, the day called Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur is celebrated by the Jews as the it's ten days behind Rosh Hashanah. It's considered the day of judgment. Okay, the day of judgment, and the, the I guess I want to say really quickly for those that don't know the really beautiful part of the significance of the Jewish. Uh, feast is that God was hiding himself inside of the feast that the Jews were observing for years before Christ would come and he would fulfill the all of the rehearsals. The feast literally means rehearsal. And uh, it's so significant for us to understand that because he was explaining things about himself. He was hiding portions of himself inside of their culture and their festivals. And the first set of feasts we talked about represent jesus first coming the second set of feasts represent jesus second coming and um tonight i really want to talk about that feast it is super hot up here guys and i'm sorry so um hopefully um yeah hopefully we wore deodorant um soon we will be moving to a room that has more ac um so i'm excited about that but i want you to go to leviticus chapter 16 if you have your bible and Leviticus chapter 23. So we're, I know that Leviticus is like my least favorite book of the Bible, if I'm being honest. I mean, they say that it's all good, but if you're reading through the Bible and you get to Leviticus, it's just like ruling. It's like you, your mind goes other places when you're reading through it. It's all of the laws, and uh, it's really important that you read it because it gives us a reference for what they practice. But I'm going to read it really quick. Leviticus 16 Verse 30. Yeah, do you want to read it, Seth? Okay, I'll read it. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. And that I'll explain what that means. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. Now, these, these are garments that were normally only worn on the Day of Atonement. And uh, I guess I would say regularly the priests wore really colorful, dark blue garments. But here they only wore white. What does white represent? Anybody? Absolutely. It represents purity in our lives and purity before the Lord. And normally, and for most days, the priests would only have to wash their face or their hands and their feet when they were going before the Lord. But on the Day of Atonement, which is also called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Judgment, the priests would have to wash their entire body, which really is a symbol of what? When you're fully submerged, what, what happens? Baptism. baptism. And baptism is, a, is an opportunity for us when we go down. We die a first death, and we come out. We're resurrected, Right. And we we begin to live a new life. The old man has passed away. Behold, it says, all things become new. So the priest would have to cleanse himself completely, fully submerged. And then he would come up. And then, only then, would he be ready to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, who can tell me a little about the Holy of Holies? Anybody? The Holy, there was, go ahead. the the the... The Ark of the Covenant was in there. Who knows what the Ark of the Covenant is? It did hold the Ten Commandments. What else did it hold? hold? It held manna. It held one other thing. Aaron's rod. Absolutely. And every one of those things is symbolic. I'm not going to go there tonight. But inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And also, aside from those three things, what, who did, who, did, who lived there? Who resided in that? Holy Ghost. It was the presence of God. Yeah. It was the presence of God. I, I don't know that it, it was, he, you know, his, his spirit was there yet because I don't know that he had fully come, but his spirit was still in operation. So, yeah, it was the presence of God in that place, and it was to be treated and revered because if you came into the presence of God with iniquity, what happened to you? You died. You died because the, the, in God's presence, sin cannot abide in his presence. Which is why the priests would even carry tassels at the bottom of their garment, and as it would be it would rotate with bells and pomegranates, and if they stopped hearing the bells jingle, they would pull out the priest because one of two things happened: the presence of God became so weighty that the priest couldn't stand anymore, or the priest had carried in iniquity into the holy of holies, and he was dead. He was he was a goner. He did, he, did not, he did not live this, so they would pull him out. But this, I'm going to keep going. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did to the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So... Have you ever heard of the term scapegoat? Where does that term come from? Does anybody know? It comes from the Day of Atonement. I'm going to explain that just for you. So it was a day where they purged the defilement of the people, and they would place it on the scapegoat. But there was three sacrifices that the Jews gave. I want you to understand our culture because Jesus was what? Jewish, he was Jewish, but he was the son of God. We know that he was fully man and fully God. He wasn't a demigod, he wasn't half man, he wasn't half God. He was fully man and he was fully God. And um, the, the bull was sacrificed first to purge the shrine from any defilement. And what they called uncanny vibrations. That's what modern, modern Jewish scholars would refer to the defilement of the priest is uncanny vibrations because the, what would happen is if the priest was out of alignment, then it would, it would vibrate and it would affect everyone. And so what I want to, I want you to know that if you're not living your best life and you're not living a sanctified life or a justified life or a life that's reflective of what God is doing, then your decision is vibrating in a way that it affects so many other people. Victor, come and sit. No, it's okay. I'm here. Okay. Well Seth's <laughs> Zen, Zen, gonna have to carry up a seat. He'll be fine. I think we got one more seat, too. Oh. oh you're fine. Don't move. I can sit in the floor. No, I'm gonna sit. <laughs> I'm sorry I, to interrupt you. No. I'm glad you're here. I want you to I wanted you to pray over some people today. But um so the Day of Atonement is also called face to face, the great day. We're talking about Yom Kippur, which was yesterday. And um, it's explaining the, this. So uncanny vibrations is, was, a name, was a thing that they would call the priests. When they carried sin, it would affect the whole community, right? And, and we're called what? Prophet, priest, and kings. That's what God called us. He called us into alignment with his kingdom. And as a prophet, what? You reveal the truth to the world around you. You reveal what's coming. You reveal what God is doing. As a, as a priest, you do what? You, you redeem. And um, so and as a king, you what? You rule. You reveal, you redeem, and you rule. But as a priesthood, God's called every one of us to, we can have an effect on our community around us if we're not actively abiding in God's grace and walking in his ordinances and living in, under his law, right? Because it's important. So one of, one of the goats was then chosen by Lot. Who understands what a Lot is? A lot is, is, um, is a way that they would, in a sense, decide what God was saying. It was a little bit like flipping a coin. Um, and you may think, well, how would they do it like that? But that's the way that they did it. And sacrificed and pur- purge the, the shrine of any defilement for all the people of Israel. And the other goat was sent away, not sacrificed, and it was to cleanse the people themselves. And that was what? When they placed the sins of the people on that goat and they would send it away, what was it known as? The scapegoat. That's where it originally came from. And the scapegoat was also was the first lot was said to be called La Adonai, which means um, Seth. Come here. Seth, sit there. La Adonai, which means to the Lord. In the second lot, sit there. And the second lot was said. (laughs) La Azazel, which means um, to the scapegoat. Okay, and it was considered a good omen if the lot marked La Adonai, because the priest would draw the lots, right? And they were marked, and they could have been. It could have been like a black rock and a white rock in a sense like that. But they would they would draw it, and if their right hand they picked La Adonai, it was considered a good omen on the year. If it was black in their if it was black in their right hand, then it was considered bad. And it is said, according to the Mishnah, which is the Jewish um, observance, it's the traditions that were passed down orally, that the 40 years that led up to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which is the year of our Lord, doesn't mean after death, it means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It said that every time for 40 years that the priest would, would take the one that says Azazel and he would grab it in his right hand, which was a bad omen. And suddenly, it says there was destruction of the temple. It's just an interesting piece of information for you to have, but that this is a picture—that picture of Azazel—is a picture of Satan, because they would take this, they would take the uh, crimson sash, tied around the horns of the goat before they released it, and they would take a portion of that crimson sash and they would they would put it on the doorway of the temple. And it said that they would then take the goat with the horn, the crimson sash on his head, and then they would lead it to the wilderness, and they would push it off of a steep cliff. Now, you could say, well, that sounds really rude, but that was the sacrifice of that time. And it represented who in Revelation? Jesus. No. No. <laughs> it's okay. You're close, though. The first one does represent. The first goat does represent Jesus that sacrificed. The second goat represents the devil. And when he's thrown off of this, off of the clip, I'm, I appreciate you for guessing. I wish all of you were more wrong in your guessing, um, that because it would mean you're at least trying to get it right. So that the um, the goat was pushed off is a it's it's the devil. And what is he cast into the? The lake of fire, but also, more importantly, the bottomless pit. Yeah, there's a bottomless pit in Revelations. And God gave us the ceremony of the lot to teach us how he will judge the nations of the world prior to the Messianic age, which is known as the millennium. And for many of us that maybe don't know, the millennium is when God comes, Jesus returns, and he judges physically as the king of the world. And Satan is tied up, he's thrown into the bottomless pit, during that time... There will be a thousand years that, that people will be marrying, giving in marriage, having children. Uh, and in that time, and after the thousand years, the devil will be released from the bottomless pit one last time. But um, the point I'm trying to make tonight is that they were, on this day, they confessed unto the Lord their sins. And I've got to um, just look at my notes here really quickly. So today, the Jews celebrate the day. By the steps of atonement, which is acknowledging wrongdoing or admitting to their sin. And they would conduct three prayers a day, as always. But on a special Yom Kippur day, they would they would meet five times. And there was an extra reading of the Torah, which is God's Word. And it's an important time of consecrating yourself in God's Word. How many ever look back and say, like, who did I do wrong this year? Because... On, on Rosh Hashanah, it's a day of celebration. It's a day celebrating the new year. But on Yom Kippur, it's a day of reflection and saying, how, how did I go wrong this year? What, what could I have done better? Who did I maybe judge, misuse, abuse, treat incorrectly? And they say this, that, uh, that is celebrated even today, is you ask forgiveness, and not only do you ask forgiveness, but you also forgive. You reach out to the people you owe an apology, and you say, I'm in need of forgiveness. Now, when you tell them in genuine sincerity that what you did was wrong, how you um, maybe sinned against them is what the scripture would say. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. But it's you saying, I've sinned against you. I didn't treat you fairly. I treated you wrong. They may not say, I forgive you. But your sins are absolved in the eyes of God in that sense when you you did that according to Jewish custom and law. We know that that our sins are only fully atoned for through the precious work of Jesus on the cross, right? And so I forgot to mention that when the red sash, according to the tradition, that several times throughout history, many times throughout history, the scarlet sash that was on the door of the temple, when the scapegoat fell to its death, it was said that the scarlet sash turned white. And that was a symbol to the Jewish people that God had received their offering and He had made atonement, and that they would be purified in their sins for that year, isn't that interesting? It's pretty, pretty fascinating. And it said that the 40 years leading up to the temple, that never once did that happen; it never turned white, before the destruction of the temple. But um, today, we're we're given the right to say, God, we want to we want to walk in Your ways, walk in Your sight. And there's so much on confession. I want to say, i I'm to I'm gonna read that in just a minute. But also the tashlik, which is a ritual, which called casting off or throwing bread in the water. Bread is something that has leaven in it, and leaven is considered sin. It's it's symbolic for sin in in the New Testament. He said, "Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, because they were look. They looked like they were walking with God, but in their lives they were judging others. They weren't helping the common man. They were taking what they could. They weren't necessarily. They were looking pious." But in their heart, there wasn't a sincerity to what they were doing. God wants us to be sincere, and He wants us to confess our sins. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go into that here, at this point in the message, really quick, because I'm gonna have Victor pray for us. Um, the word "confess" in the New Testament is the word "homologeo." So I want you, I want I want us all to say that together: "homologeo." Yeah, you'll remember that for certain reasons because there's certain words that sound funny in there, but it means, (laughs) it means to say the same thing as another, to agree with or assert. It also means to concede, not to refuse or to promise, not to deny, to confess, to declare and to confess. And we find this in first John chapter one and verse nine. If anybody wants to turn there or read it for me. 1 John chapter one and verse nine. And this confession is important because it unlocks something from God in our life. When we confess to our brothers, when we confess to God, it releases an understanding. Go ahead and read that. Yep. If we we have no sin, we are ourselves and not living in the truth. So I might have given you the wrong verse. Uh, yeah first John no that's it's the right chapter yeah that's okay that's a good one too and that's the that's the, that gives us context for the verse So I'm glad you read it if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and will forgive us so he is faithful and just right what does that mean? That's who he is, that he is faithful and just. It means that he's worthy of our trust and that God can be relied on. At times in our lives, we go through uncertainties. We, we may be given bad reports. We may be given uh, times in our life where we're discouraged. But does it take away from who he is? It's who his, he is. His nature is unchanging. Even though our circumstances changing, his nature and his abiding presence remain the same. And it's out of his faithfulness, and it says he's just. So he's righteous, he's right, he's observing divine laws. He's approved, that means approved by God. He's just and will forgive. So what he does that he forgives comes from who he is, right? Would you say that in our lives what we do flows from who we are? What we do flows flows from who we are. And sometimes I think that we haven't fully committed our actions unto God because we haven't fully understood who it is that we are in Christ. And what we do flows from who we are. If your actions don't reflect the person you present yourself to be, you're a hypocrite. If your actions don't reflect the person that you desire to be, you're an addict. If your actions don't reflect the person you present yourself to be, you're a hypocrite. If your actions don't reflect the person that you desire to be, then you're a hypocrite. Or no, no, sorry, you're an addict. You're addicted to something. You're in love with something that the world has, but your desire, your will is for the Lord. And there's times in my life where I had to say, God, I am fascinated by the world. I'm fascinated by things that appeal to my flesh, but help I'm praying, God, give me the will to will to be better because my will right now is made up of my flesh. I want worldly things, but my spirit desires after you. So I'm asking you to make my spirit strong so that that which I desire of the spirit is stronger than that which I desire of the flesh. And in order for me to really build the desire of my spirit, I've got to feed my spirit. And I've said this before, but there's a story of two dogs. There's a a white dog and and a black dog, and there was a man on an island, and he would pit the dogs together, and they would fight. And every single week, he knew who the winning dog was going to be. And some said he had a special connection with God. Other people said he was a diviner. Some people said that he was a psychic if he wasn't a prophet. But every week, he would know, and he was a very natural man, but people would bet on his dogs. He would always have the winning bet. He would make a lot of money. So towards the end of his life, it didn't matter. If he bet on the white dog one week, the white dog would win. He could bet on the the white dog again, and the white dog would win. The third week he bet on the white dog, then everyone would say, it's got to be the white dog. The white dog always wins. And the fourth week, he would bet on the black dog, and the black dog would win. And they always wondered why. How did he know? Towards the end of his life, he said, how did you always know? He said, Easy. I would feed the one that week, and I wouldn't feed the other. And in our lives, the thing that we're feeding will be the thing that's winning. The thing that we contribute to, if we read the word, if we consecrate ourselves, our spirit will beat our flesh. But if we present the food of our flesh, and we, we get stuck in ourselves and our selfishness, and, and we suck in our own ways, then we'll lose sight of what God has for us. And if your actions don't reflect the person God says you are, you're confused, right? Because God says something that's greater than our, than our nature. When God created us, he created us to be really made in his image. We were perfected until sin corrupted us. And then we were given a nature that was different from the original nature that God presented to us. We were given to animalistic understandings and, and we're given to desires of the flesh, right? Until we come into alignment with ourselves as God sees us, we're confused. If Your actions don't reflect the person God says you are, you're confused. So God is light and in him there is no darkness. That's 1 John chapter 1. It says if, the, if we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth, we do not practice the truth, right? So, it's important for us to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, and this is what confessing our sins will also do to us. Proverbs 28 and verse 13, it says, Conceal their sin. If you conceal their sin, they will not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces their, their sins, they find mercy. So, how many know it's not enough to just confess, right? Confession is the first step. In repentance. I talked about repentance, but now confession is the first step. And Jesus said to often, he said, you are healed, right? Your faith has made you well. Now, then what did he follow it up with? He said, now go and sin no more. He said, or worse will happen to you. Something worse will happen to you. So God is encouraging us to live a contrite life. And I am not perfect, right? I'm not perfect. But I give my heart to him. And I can make daily confession unto the Lord and say, God, but I'm like you. I, 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 I did something that was dislike you, but I'm going to be more like you. And the word confession means more than just what we said, it means not to deny. How many know that denial will prevent us from understanding God's ways? Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Amen. <laughs> Denial will, will prevent us from fully ac- accepting, Lord, I have an issue. I have, a, I have an issue that I want to work on, and I want to be better, but I have to accept that I have an issue. In fact, the five stages of, of, of uh, recovery, number one is awareness and early acknowledgement. I've got to acknowledge that this exists in my life. I have to acknowledge that I have an infection for me to deal with the infection. If I... I don't have an infection. I don't have an infection. Well... It's turning green and it's growing. <laughs> Sometimes in our lives we do that with sin. And number two is consideration. Now I've got to consider how, what, what's causing me to act like this. Where is this coming from? Where is this going in my life? Uh, a lot of times the, the issues we have are symptoms and we need to deal with the roots. Number three is exploring recovery, early recovery, and then active recovery. And all of recovery, and when we look to the word, God doesn't just bring us into recovery. God brings us into reformation and transformation. We we don't recover what was. We've come into something that's brand new and something that's more amazing than anything we ever had before. And it says this, So if we confess and renounce our sin, we find mercy. But he who confesses and forsakes his sin, he finds mercy. And... Psalm 32, five. it says, You forgive the guilt of my sin when I confess. Romans 10.10, 10, if anybody wants to read it, it, For it is with your heart that you believe and you are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess. That word profess is the same word confess. Profess faith and are saved. So not only are you confessing unto God, but you're professing. When I say this is who I was, I'm not being held to who I was anymore. I'm saying I saw myself that way, but that man's dead. God, I declare the dead man so that I am now professing the new man. When I confess to God, when I confess to my friends, I'm saying I did, I did drink alcohol, I got drunk, I did smoke marijuana, I got high, I did lust, I did commit adultery because I, I, sinned, I, I had premarital sex with somebody. And now I'm saying that is the dead me I looked at porn, but that's the dead me. God's purified me. I'm now the pure me, and I want to do better. And I'm going to, before we pray here just a moment, I I want to tell you a story just quickly, too, about Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley came to the NBA, and he had a mentor named, um, shoot, let me look at my notes really fast. I thought I had this down. His name was Moses Malone. Anybody ever heard of Moses Malone? (laughs) Moses Malone. Move it, Moses. Moses Malone saw a young Charles Barkley and he was 70 to 80 pounds overweight. He saw a guy with a lot of talent, but he he saw a guy that would never reach his potential if he didn't have a coach. And so uh, Moses Malone came to him and he said, Charles, I want you to lose 10 pounds. He said, I want you to lose 10 pounds. And he said, because you'll never be able to play professional ball the way that you could unless you lose those 10 pounds. He said, after you lose those 10 pounds, we're going to go. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a little party. And guess what? Two weeks later, three weeks later, he came back to Moses Malone. He said, guess what? I lost that weight. I lost that weight. And he said, now we're going to go celebrate. He went and they celebrated, had some food together, had a good time, encouraged each other. A week later, Moses Malone went to Charles Barkley. He said, Charles, you're never going to play the way that you can achieve your greatest success and have your fullest potential unless you lose 10 pounds. He goes, what? He goes, yep, you just did it. You proved to me that you can do it. I want you to lose 10 pounds. So another two weeks went by. He came back to Moses Malone and he said, I lost the 10 pounds. He said, let's go out and celebrate. So they went out and they celebrated. And a week went by, Moses Malone goes to Charles Barkley and Charles Barkley, he says, son, you lost 10 pounds and then you did it again. I want you to prove to yourself you can lose another 10 pounds. And he came back within a couple of weeks and he said, I lost another 10 pounds. They went out and they celebrated. A week later, He goes back to Charles Barkley and he says, Charles, you're still not where you need to be. You can be the best. I see you becoming one of the greatest NBA players that has ever been in the league. You need to lose 10 pounds. Guess what? He did that eight times before Charles Barkley lost all 80 pounds in the course of a year. Lost 80 pounds. Can you imagine that? So he went to Moses Malone. He considered him a mentor. In fact, he even called him dad. And he said, uh, Why did you not tell me in the very beginning that I just needed to lose 80 pounds? He said, Because I knew that you would get disappointed, you would get discouraged, and you wouldn't be able to do it. But I knew if I gave it to you in small bites, that you could achieve it and you could do it. Some of you in this room, you're looking at the sin that's been in your life, you're looking at some of the habits that you've had, and you're saying, I can't beat this. I've tried really hard for a long time. I, I constantly gripe, I complain, I have the sin of complaining, I, I discourage myself, sometimes I discourage others, I don't know if I can do this. I want you to go, if that's you, you say, I, I can't, I keep complaining, I want you to confess to God, I want you to go to a friend and say, I keep, I keep living in complaint, and I, everything's gray, I keep looking through gray glasses, I want you to find a good friend, I want you to get a, get a wristband, get a, get a um, rubber band. And every time you hear yourself complain, I want you to snap your wrists with that rubber band and say, oh my goodness, yeah, I want you to try to go 24 hours without complaining, if that's you. Go 24 hours without sinning, without having that cigarette. And you know what? If If you started yesterday and you smoked a whole pack a day, and today you smoked one less, I want you to give yourself a pat on the back and say, you know what? I did something. I, I came, I, I did better than I did yesterday. I smoked one less today. I want, you to, I want you to take hold of the minor victories because, guess what? If you look at the Old Testament, and it says that God created the heavens and the earth, and every time he created, he said what? It is good. Some people have told you that you can't pat yourself on the back, you can't encourage yourself, but God gave us a model, and he said every time. The work wasn't completed yet, but what? It was Good. And finally you'll get to a place like God got where his work was completed, and he looked back on it, and he reflected, and he said, It is very good. But I want you to I want you to know that the confession is the thing that's going to bring healing to our lives. And I want you to think of, I don't know, did anybody bring the thing that they want to work on this year with you? Did you write it down in your journal from last week? The one thing I gave you, I'm gonna give you another chance. I want you to write it down. The one thing that you need to confess to God to work better on this year. Not a lot of things, just one thing that it can be. Could be, could be quit quit eating all the box of Oreos the first time you get it in the house. Maybe, maybe you need to say, I only had ten Oreos instead of the whole thing. That's great. I don't know what exactly it is for you guys, but God wants to do something powerful in you and through you. And He wants us to become better. He wants us to develop growth. And we can't do that if we don't acknowledge that there's sin in our lives. So one of the very first things we need to do is acknowledging that it's there. And the next thing we need to do is confessing that it's there. And then we need to say, I need an accountability partner. And we need to work this thing out. Amen? And God will do that. And I love you guys, and I'm so grateful for you.